0: This podcast is exclusively created for men searching for greater ways to connect to their queen and children on a deeper level and build keystone habits that will impact and enhance their movement, mindset, spirit, lifestyle, business, and legacy. Fathers of the Future is about the power of true, authentic storytelling with one sole purpose, to build a better dad. My name is Luke Kayam, and I am a father of the future. What the hell? Is a kid from Southeast Ohio, doing as an orthopedic hand surgeon in Scottsdale, Arizona. How'd you get here,
1: Luke? That's a that's an interesting story. You know, um, someone recently even just kind of reached out to me from my hometown. I'm, I'm from McConnellsville, Ohio. It's a small little Southeast Ohio town. Um, I think we were number one in like the number of deer tagged, and uh, maybe unemployment or. Uh, Uh, The number of houses that maybe flooded whenever the uh, river would flood over. But it it wasn't the most academically encouraging place to grow up. And, uh, you know, I remember in ninth grade in Mr. Harper's class, he asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I said I wanted to be a doctor. And it became this joke. And every time some question might come up, he would look at me and say, well, let's ask the doc. And I was a pretty shy kid. So that just shut me down. Like the the concept of doing that just immediately uh, eroded away. Fast forward four years, I'm in um, freshman year at Ohio State and my roommate, Mike Morocco, was a pre-med student. He was a transfer. He was a sophomore. And he tells me he's pre-med. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, don't you have to go to an Ivy League school? I mean, I was that green. You know, I had my little mullet, my peach fuzz mustache and it's 1990." And uh, he's like, no, dude, you know, they have a med school here, you don't have to go to Harvard to be a doctor. And I watched his process, I watched his evolution, and I was a guy without a major. And I was uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. I knew I was destined to get out of McConnellsville, Ohio, but I wasn't sure how or what it was going to be. And, and it was actually him who encouraged me to aspire to something bigger and to at least try. And that first quarter I tried, I got my butt kicked and I fell flat on my face. And my pre-med advisor said, this is not for you. And you know, you've know, you wasted all your time in university college doing your easy stuff. All you got's the hard stuff now, man, it's not gonna happen. And and there was a flip uh, in, in my whole sort of way of studying and, and how I looked at life and everything changed. And I was Dean's list or 4.0 ever since. I was blessed enough to get into school. And uh, I thought I was gonna actually be a plastic surgeon and then I hated my general surgery rotation. I was like, I didn't want to put my finger in somebody's butt. I, did, I didn't want to be stuck doing gallbladders and, and appies my entire life. And then I did ortho and my dad was a, a mechanical engineer. He was like the Bob Vila at home. And, and I'm like, all right, I get this. This speaks my language. I know what a saw is and a hammer and a screwdriver is. And, and then that was it. Uh, and then I moved through residency uh, all in Ohio. And then I did my, um, my fellowship in hand and upper extremity at the Cleveland Clinic, that was 2005. And then I came out here, uh, 14 inches of snow in April in Cleveland, I'd had enough. So I looked at opportunities in, in Colorado and in Arizona. My parents, they moved out here in 2004. Um, I knew eventually I wanted to be a, a father. Um, I was uh, engaged at the time. So I got married in 2005 in June, Uh, finished my fellowship, bought a house, started a practice and moved across the country all within like two months. So that was a big year.
0: Yeah. So not only are you the first doctor guest on this show, (laughs) but you're also the first dad who not only had and has a dad in his life, but on the pre-show, you're the first man I've heard in a long time say his dad is his hero. What has that relationship been like to get you to this point?
1: You know, I'm, I am I just had a, I just turned another year. I'm 47 now. And it's funny. I still look to my father for advice. And I remember when I was in college, he even looked at me and he's like, son, you know, you, you're doing well. You're capable of making your own decisions. But it's just funny. It's, I still seek his validation. I still have such Uh, respect for who he is as, as a man, as a father. Um, He grew up the youngest of three. He grew up the the son of an alcoholic father. Um, He grew up a guy who.
0: Was he in Ohio too?
1: He was in Ohio. Yeah. whole, Whole family born and raised. And so here was a guy who was 18 dating his high school sweetheart, goes off to Ohio state. She gets pregnant. He drops out of school, moves back home, moves back in with his parents, marries my mom. They have a, they elope, they get married at uh, 19, or they get married at 18, have my sister at 19, and when they eloped and got married, each of them went back to their own parents' house. Um, he reupholstered car seats, he, he worked at a gas station, he did whatever he could to try and make ends meet, and by 22, they'd had me. He was taking a bus, uh, commuting to Cleveland State, and he, he relayed this story once to me that he just wanted to get a drafting degree. He just needed something to try and make ends meet. And he decided he was going to shoot for the stars. You know, if he, if he hit the moon, that was fine. If he became a drafter, that was fine. But he decided to shoot for the stars and he got his degree in mechanical engineering. And there was a picture that he had. It was it was my dad, my mom. It's a black and white. And I actually still have this eight by 10. It's my dad, my mom, my sister. I, I'm not even alive yet. And he's got this ugly tweed jacket on and he's got these filthy hands. And I remember my mom tells the story about how mad she was that his hands were filthy because he was working in a gas station. He was doing whatever he could to support his family. And that was a guy who was in school busting his butt to create this life for my mom and my sister. And that picture actually sat on my shelf all through college. And he would stack his little binders. Not everything's on a computer, but he would stack his binders one after the other. And that was just this, it was symbolic of his progression towards his eventual degree. And he was 26 before he got his degree. So in the speech I gave uh, to announce to my family that I had actually been accepted to med school, it was actually at my grandparents' 50th wedding
0: anniversary. So uh, you've got some lineage of of married family yes. members. Your your father and your mom just celebrated 50 years, Yep, which is a very cool story. I'd love you to share that as well.
1: They've been together for 50 years. We were celebrating my uh, maternal grandparents' 50th anniversary when I made the announcement um my paternal grandparents stayed together and and it was a a, a year ago that uh, my mom and dad who again had eloped decided that they were finally going to get married in a church and have a a, a true wedding so I I was honored to be my dad's best man and give the best man speech wow. uh, at my mom and dad's wedding so it's oh I mean, man it was incredible is yeah. there
0: any dry eyes in the uh, room man I mean that's did, Public you, not, did you knock them down sp- uh, I think I did well.
1: Yeah, I think I did well. You know, public speaking is something that has always uh, just scared me to death. And, which is
0: uh, which is absolutely amazing because you know the viewers can't they can't see it at this point in the game, but I can. And you're very articulate. Like your 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 choice of words and timing is very powerful. So I'm very surprised by that. I'm gonna call it bullshit. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I don't know. Well, this is the guy who who took his freshman year speech class as a senior with a bunch of freshmen because he dropped it three times because he didn't have the balls actually complete it and finish it. So maybe I'm evolving, but uh, no, trust me, I've got uh, I've got my cotton mouth
0: right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so families who come from families or kids who come from parents of families who are married and committed and, you know, not the typical, my parents got divorced. And because of that, I have commitment issues. Mm-hmm. You were falling in line between your grandparents and your parents, both celebrating 50 year wedding anniversaries. Yep. And you got married, uh, right at the same time that, that some big things were happening in your life. And then how soon did you have kids?
1: So, uh my wife and I married 2005. We'd been dating for a long time. And um, we were we were married for four years and we had a good time. I mean, we we wanted to live, we wanted to enjoy. We knew that life was gonna change once we started a family. So that was never really a question. We knew that uh, that was in our, our future. God willing, if we were able to conceive, we were gonna have kids. Uh, so in 2009, we were blessed with the birth of my daughter. And uh, that was a rough start. I mean, as soon as she was delivered and they lay her body on top of my wife's, um, I could see this sacral dimpling on the back of her butt and being an orthopod, I knew that's not good, man. And, and it freaked me out. So my, my wife is overjoyed. I'm trying to equally Uh, sharing this experience but all of a sudden this overwhelming fear just set over me
0: so could you simplify that for the listeners and myself so exactly what that this was a sign of
1: possible uh like neural tube defects in spina bifida Mm. and and in fact she did so she had a a mild form of spina bifida um and she ended up having surgery at three months of age she had spine surgery at three months of age to release what's called a tethered spinal cord So a guy named Dr. Adelson, he's a phenomenal neurosurgeon that Phoenix Children's operated on my daughter. You know, I'm a surgeon myself and I might get anxious over uh, some complicated hand surgery. Here's a guy who's gonna take my three month old and open up her spine and try and find the right fiber to Mm. cut, but not cut my daughter's neural roots uh, that could paralyze her for life. So I have mad respect for Dr. Adelson and she's doing fine. She's neuronormal. And everything is good. And poor Jamie had yeah. to take like four times the folic acid the next time we conceive. <laughs> but that that got things off to um, a hairy start. And, you know, for so many people, that pregnancy is such a joyous time. And you're waiting for the, um, the ultrasounds and you get excited and you're sending these to your family. For me, especially for my son who came three or two and a half years later, man, there was trepidation every time we went. And every time we had an ultrasound, I'm just looking like, oh my God, okay. All right, he's got a brain. Okay, he's got two arms. All right, he's got two legs. And just that fear of what if. And fortunately we were blessed and he's he's absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah, we had a what if with our daughter who you just saw in the other room. Mm-hmm. We were on our way to Scottsdale from Los Angeles and we were still with our LA OBGYN and they were talking to us and they did the first ultrasound, I think at like uh, eight to 10 weeks, somewhere in there, maybe 12. And uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. He says, hmm. <laughs> 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 hmm. Love and you know, I, I, all the dads out there, like it's up to you, you make the decision, but I went to everything. Like I went to every single doctor's appointment my wife had and I just left the doctors with my two kids now getting their 11 and 12 year old well check. I've always been active and present when it comes to you know learning because i want to know what what's happening what i didn't want to leave my wife kind of hanging out there right so he does the uh uh-oh and we ask what does that mean and he says well we we i believe that it could be a still birth i don't see a heartbeat the heartbeat's not there but uh, come back in two weeks and we'll we'll check it out again and i remember for two weeks we we have a very healthy you know nine month old son but for two weeks we're just like wow what do we do, what do we do, what do we do? We go back and literally as quickly as he said, hmm, he goes, oh, there she is. <laughs> and we were like, oh my gosh. So the dads that are listening, we've all been through that yeah. what if, that uh-oh, that massive pit in your gut of how can I help, how can I protect, how can I keep this little thing happy and healthy? So you felt that right away in your path as a father.
1: Absolutely, and and I remember in in you know Jamie recalls uh, the first night we had our daughter home, and I'm 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 reviewing all these articles, and she's asleep, and she wakes up, and she sees me with just tears streaming down my face, and and she recalls that at that moment she knew this is actually serious, and and there's something going on, and you know she even had this this little like brown nevis and that combination between the brown nevis and the, um, and, and the sacral dimpling. And it wasn't just one little dimple. It was like a Y cleft dimple. It just, I was running stories like crazy, just like you mentioned. Mm. And, and I remember not wanting her to have a general anesthesia for her MRI and sitting in this tube with my hamstrings on fire, trying to hold my, my baby's ears shut so she could tolerate an MRI and then eventually the surgery. And wow. it, Th- those experiences as a physician really do mold you. I am a much better physician to kids today as a result of being a father, hands down. It's just, uh, it- it's been a remarkable difference. So I can empathize with you. Yeah. And and I can also uh, understand where my choice of words as a physician is very important too, to leave you hanging for two weeks on the, hmm, it's <laughs> awful, right? It's awful.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of physicians out there that we we hear about that they go through burnout. And you recently wrote an article uh, about how to uh, resist or combat some of that. As a father, as a husband, two kids, a practice, thriving practice, how did you combat burnout? Or did you burn out and then have to take some steps back?
1: I would say the latter. You know, it's... uh. uh when i was asked to write that article i thought well this is the universe this is uh you know this is a cruel joke um, and, and i can uh, eventually get to that but at the time i was asked to write it uh, my life as the life that i knew had burned to the ground and i was in the midst of trying to kind of rebuild things so you know one of the one of the things that i've become more aware of is i was living my life one achievement at a time and in a way i was wishing away time. And unfortunately, sometimes that's even the time with your kids. It was, I've got to get through high school to get into a good college. I got to get through college to get into a medical school. I got to get through med school to get the best residency, to get through internship and get through that residency program to get into the best fellowship, to get through the fellowship, to get into that first year of practice. And I was constantly just telling her that, well, you just wait, you know, once we get through this, it's going to get better. Once we get through this, it's going to get better. And it's like, when When does that ever stop? and And I remember uh, reading a book by Dan Sullivan. And he talks about, you know, there's achievers in life. And some of these uh, there are achievers in life and some are happy and some aren't. And what's the big difference? And what he found was that uh, achievers who are able to look ahead to that horizon but still have the capacity to measure backwards were happier. People who could kind of look back and say, You know, maybe I wasn't the first in my class, but I graduated from medical school. Or look at me now—I'm an orthopedic hand surgeon. Or look what I've actually accomplished and where I am today. Versus just immediately, as soon as you hit that goal, they're now moving on to the next horizon. But we all know you can't reach the horizon. Once you reach the horizon, there is a new horizon. And I did that a lot, and I have to constantly sort of remind myself to stop for a moment and try and live life. And and I think that. That actually did harm my relationship, and and I think that you know my wife probably got tired of hearing the, well we're almost there we're almost there. Did
0: and, you hear it? Um,
1: you know, Jamie consistently wanted me to live. You know, I think we had different mentalities, and, and I, I saw a letter that I actually wrote to her, and it, it broke my heart. It was a letter I wrote as a fellow. So this is back in you know 2005, and I and I wrote this letter, and in, in, in it actually had some apologies for my work ethic, for who I was, and what I was doing, and I was like, wow, there I am, engaged. I'm not even married yet, and I'm already apologizing for for who I am as a man, for who I am as a creator, for who I am as a producer, and it it made me sad. My dad even pointed out to me once. He's like, Craig, you you might be hard to be married to. He's like, you push, you don't sit, you achieve, you're constantly looking to grow. And for some people that's exhausting. And for some people that may make them feel like, well, I'm, I'm lazy or, or I'm inadequate. My wife would constantly try and get me to relax. And it was difficult sometimes to be present. And I, I regret that, um, especially times when the kids are looking at you and they're just simply asking, you know, daddy, will you play with me? And I'm worried about fixing this and fixing that. And, and I'm beginning to grow uh, further in resentment. And I'm thinking, man, I'm, I'm busting my butt. I'm working all these hours, I'm coming home and now I've got to fix this and I've got to fix this. And you know, why isn't the checkbook balanced? And why hasn't the mail been opened? And she's looking at me thinking, well, why can't you just relax? And I'm like, how can I relax? And None of this is done, and where's my
0: blowjob and dinner? Yeah, yeah.
1: it's it's yeah. like, and what are all these receipts? And why'd you buy this? And why hasn't that been returned? And and honestly, um, resentment and and my unwillingness to confront that, I, I think did continue to uh, erode the relationship. And how long did it last? Uh, I was married for eleven years, and. And I could tell that there was a growing gap and I could tell that my resentment was rising and I can tell that there was a disconnect that was occurring. And if I look back, I would say that there was a significant failure to have the crucial conversations early enough and often enough in our marriage that eventually led to a demise. And I can remember her beginning to pull away and I can remember even before that, uh, I became committed to trying to find a solution. I'm a fixer, right? You got a problem, I'm going to fix it and I'm going to work my ass off to do it. And I, I went on a journey uh, on a quest to try and find a better balance and, and to save my marriage. I, I looked at life almost like this book. It was this novel, but I cheated. I read ahead and I didn't like the way the book ended. And I was worried where it was going, yet, but yet I felt powerless. I felt like every day I just turned another page. And I thought, if I don't make a change, I'm eventually going to get to the end of this book and it ends bad. And in this quest to become a better man, I think I achieved that. I actually did find a better balance in who I was as a physician, as a father, a spiritual connection, my physical capacity. And I developed this concept of what I thought my marriage should actually be. And change is hard, right? I mean, when we all have, after years, our own place, I say this, you say that, I sit here, you sit there, and that, that pattern had been developed and it was strong. So suddenly when I come home and just collide with my wife with this, this is the way things are going to be. Here's this picture of the future that I want to have, and I want you to climb on board with me, come with me, we're going to make change and everything's going to be perfect. And I think in the end, she was already disconnected to the point where it was easier to just check out. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in a Scottsdale office in the middle of seeing patients. And I received a text message from her that said, I just don't think this is going to work. And I think we need to get a divorce. And I was blown away. I'm like, are you, are you freaking kidding me? I just got a divorce text in the oh. middle of clinic? Like You got to be kidding me. So I was Appalled, I was pissed, I was angry, but I was also in denial, and I thought, "There's no way this is a um, this is a, not, not an empty threat, but this is just a uh, maybe a wake-up call that what I was doing still wasn't working. Maybe I just need to try harder." And because that picture still exists in my mind, to the point that I could define what I wanted my marriage to be and what I wanted to give to a woman, what I wanted to receive from a woman, and that was never shared. I actually never was able to share that with her. Um,
0: And prior to that text, you were doing some pretty intense things. And one of the reasons why we've been aligned mm -hmm. and a lot of the men that, you know, you and I are, we do not have a working relationship. We have a pure friendship. And uh, a lot of the guys I bring on the show have been through some of my coaching programs or my crucibles, but this is just a a real and, and raw, authentic friendship and from that friendship i've learned some things about you that are extremely powerful and then once we got to talking and getting to know each other on the side of a mountain i realized we had we've done so many of the same experiential based learning right between seal fit and warrior you were doing iron mans for a while 11 summits walk us through that morning where you I think he had just gotten back from Kokoro. Uh, Shout out to Mark Devine and Seal Fit. Uh, If you want to increase your mental capacity, there's only one program on the planet that that (laughs) will will literally uh, wake you up and allow you to live a fulfilled life if you can complete it. The first time I went, uh, I took a a client from the gym and he tapped out at 10 p.m. on day one and he was supposed to drive home. (laughs) And if you don't know, Kokoro is a 55-hour crucible with no sleep, no rest, no stopping. It is two plus days. And those of us who complete it and graduate from it have a bond for life because it's one of the hardest things on the planet.
1: 100%. And if you want to learn something about yourself, that's one way to do it for sure. Yeah. And, and, And I hope the listeners caught when Luke said the first time I did it, so he's <laughs> the only man I know. Now there's a few <laughs> who, who went back twice, yeah. and and that's uh, that's an amazing feat to get through it once, uh, but not only once, twice, and and you're right, and and I think there's a couple um, lessons that I pulled away from that whole process of trying to be the man, and I also realized that you know fitness became a form of sedation. I mean, there are horrible forms of sedation. It could be alcohol, pornography, drug addictions, whatever. You could be addicted to your work, but I hid in fitness and it took a long time for me to realize that. I mean, why else would I sit on a bike burning my ass for 6 hours training for an Ironman if I wasn't sedating to some effect? And I didn't realize it at the time. And as Kokoro was approaching, I knew that my my marriage was was struggling. And, and I really struggled with whether I was going to go. And I thought this is going to be the thing that's going to fix things. And I'm going to come back, this leader, this warrior, this man, who's going to uh, change things and she'll see it. So just as you described, it's a, it's, it's a 55 hour crucible and you come back physically just broken, mentally exhausted. And was, the it, fry- was this your
0: first part of the journey? In your life, like you can't consider medical school or even, you know, your first few years in, in the field as training, you're, you're like living and operating, you're in it, but to take a step back and work on your personal development through some really outrageous um, experiences. Was that the first one in this path or were you doing Ironmans prior to that?
1: So the, uh, the Ironman came up in, um, probably 2009. So there was a little bit of a break between, you know, there was kind of get the practice started. Uh, then the triathlon training came up and then there was a bit of a lull. Um, but it's, it's interesting in, in the point about trying some of these new things is an interesting concept too, because isn't it fascinating that after college or high school, we stop learning, we kind of get into our groove and we, we, most of us fail to continue to grow, whether that's through, you know, true collegiate like education or just in, in many areas of our life, unless our, our job mandates it. Like for me, it's my continuing medical education. So it wasn't until I went to, um, warrior that I actually invested in myself and my growth, especially in areas outside of just continuing med-ed. And it, and it was through that process that I was trying to become a better man, a better father. And in many respects, I believe it was working. And one of the greatest compliments I ever got from my ex-wife was, you know, you're a better father today than you ever were. And in a sad way, it, it almost gave her, I think, permission I mean, this hurts. Like I have 50% custody of my kids. And so the growth that she saw in me more or less gave her permission that she knew the kids were going to be fine. Um, the, the pain that a woman has to feel to know that she's going to lose 50% of the waking hours of, of, of her kids' lives... Um, it saddens me uh, to know that someone would feel that strongly um, and to do that and to choose that and to choose not to fight, um, to give that up. Um, it it saddens me to know that she must have been in that position. But I had gratitude to know that I would grown as a father enough that she felt comfortable that they would be fine. And I kind of got sidetracked, man. But well, but you, as uh, <laughs>
0: you're you're a fighter, you just mentioned that. When did you stop fighting? When, when did you decide that all of these things that were happening around you, that your personality, that your discipline, that your power to always fix things, to always work, to always succeed, that could be in the same category as fighting, right? It's right. High, high stress, it's high emotion. I'm always battling, I'm always going to war. You have a dark side and a light side like we all do, but when did you stop fighting?
1: In, in some respects, I never have. In other respects, I finally submitted. And I'll, I'll finish the one story to answer the question into the second part of that. And at the end of Kokoro, when I came home, bloodied, beaten, bruised, um, I had to operate the next day. I had eleven surgeries, and um, my my wife was living in the guest house at the time, and and she complimented my mental fortitude and my physical <laughs> abilities, and followed that up with "There's some papers down on your desk," and I'll never forget that feeling of going down to my office and seeing this blue folder with a post it note that said "Congratulations," and you know you, you're you amaze me with your, with your toughness, with your, your with your abilities and congratulations. And I opened it up and it was a lawsuit. I, I had no idea that you filed for a lawsuit uh, for an irreconcilable differences. And it, it floored me, but I was still in a little bit of denial. I knew this was serious, but I still thought we're going to fix this thing. There's no way we're going to quit on this. Um, and once I pled with her with I was sobbing, just pleading with her to just not do this. And I realized that um, this was actually going to happen. And I still didn't stop fighting. Then the fight became very different. And I became uh, very tactical and just made sure that this was going to be the simplest thing possible. I was going to grant her wish. And it was very short. And within three months, everything was signed and done. And that was it. And then i still had to fight because now life is different right suddenly i'm a single dad and i'm moving out of my house and i'm trying to figure out where things are going to go this is the end of 2016 moving into 2017 the submission that you brought up it has really come probably in the last year or two and, and that's um trying to be enough of a man enough of a christian enough of of a father who can forgive and who can be happy for her. My my goal and my aim is to love my wife, is to see my kids never see me disrespect her, to always see me love her. And there are times that's difficult. There are times that I struggle with that still. I think we do a great job and I think we co-parent well. And I think that she's a phenomenal mom. And I know that it breaks her heart every moment that she's not with those kids. And she's moved on and she's in a good place. and. She's in a great home and she's in a good relationship with a, with a guy who treats my kids with respect, who's a single father himself, who's been through exactly what I've been through, who treats me with respect. And that's good. And in the dark side of me, the angry side of me, the resentful side of me thinks, well, she didn't suffer or this was too easy or she could move straight from me. And, and then I was always thinking, well, she's going to regret this and she's going to look back and she's going to go through. Hard financial times, or she'll never find somebody like me, and she's going to suffer and regret this. And that's so small of me to think that way. And I hate that. And every once in a while, that comes up, and I pray to God that I can squash that small side of my personality and just love her for where she is and for who she is, for the mother that she is, and for the mother that gave me these two beautiful kids. And that's all I want. That's what I want to do from here moving forward and a friend of mine once said to me you know as long as your kids are alive as long as you're alive and as long as she's alive you're gonna be in each other's lives so the best thing you can do is love her so single dads out there um, who are holding on to that anger holding on to that resentment you know i want you to look in the mirror and ask yourself who who are you really harming here i mean you're drinking your own poison we've all heard that analogy but even more than that, you're really harming your kids. What example do you want to set you know, for how your kids want to treat a woman or be treated by a man? Um,
0: and you, you can do that now, but there was a time where you actually, your income dropped by 70%.
1: That was a hell of a year. Yeah. <laughs> so.
0: And your, your ex-wife made more money than you did. That sucked. How, 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 <laughs> how can how can you sit here with such a loving smile on your face?
1: You know, the experience taught me a lot. And I think that, you know, if Jamie were sitting beside me, and the beauty is she could be sitting here beside me sharing this story and sharing her side. Um, and, and I think that we're at a point where we both do uh, hold ourselves responsible for where we are and you know money was an issue and um and i resented her for some of the financial stuff that that happened and i have much more grace for her now you know when i have a credit card bill it's my credit card bill it's not hers and i still have high credit card (laughs) bills which is humbling some ownership there there is some ownership but that transition from 16 to 17 the the business and the practice that I was in just went through a massive change, and and literally my income dropped seventy percent, and what I was paying compared to what I was earning uh, was offset incredibly. And and for anyone who's been through it, it's called a non-modifiable for amount and duration uh, alimony agreement, which I thought you know would probably be the it was what was advised, and so there was no going back. The government. The state had no mercy. There was no grace. They didn't really care where the money was coming from, even if that came from my personal savings or I liquidated uh, any assets or retirement plans. uh, I just had an obligation to pay that money to the point that um, I was selling assets. I was selling things that I owned to try and make alimony payments. There was this irony that I had this old 68 Mustang that my dad and I restored, and I sold that car to buy a wedding ring. And then I had a 69 Mach 1, which was the car that I always wanted, and I sold that to pay alimony. Oh, <laughs> I can laugh about it yeah, now. Yeah. The kids called it the rum-rum car. Well, the rum-rum car is no longer, and that's okay. It really has humbled me about where I am.
0: And what matters.
1: And what matters. And even dropping uh, the group that I was in, it's, it's allowed me to quit things to realize that I can accept change, move forward. The
0: business group, the, the medical group. Yeah, with, yeah. I
1: actually, uh, and that was one of the things that I talked about in in my hand society, physician burnout. I actually made that change. I, I resigned from my group. I was next in line to be president of the group. And I made a decision at that point to whether, or, I was on the executive committee and I was supposed to be president And I knew that that move meant I was going to give my soul to that organization to try and turn it around. That meant that I would be driving down to downtown Phoenix more. That meant that I would be away from my kids more. And I thought, I can do this and maybe turn it around. And I was even told by some of my partners, you know, this is a legacy that you're going to want. This is, you know, something on your resume that you're going to want. The hell with that. I went in a different direction. I resigned. And as of, 2019 I've gone without a salary with a small exception enough to pay for my benefits, my health insurance, uh, still paying the alimony, living off some savings but it was the best decision I ever made. And, and again, I'm blessed and, and I'm gonna be fine and I realize that now and I thought that my whole financial world was actually uh, was, was was just decimated by this divorce and it was but it's okay. I'm gonna be fine. And things are really turning around, so I feel I feel blessed. I feel grateful. The new group that I'm with has been uh, very stand up. They've promised. Uh, they've delivered everything that they promised.
0: You mentioned that you felt like a failure after the divorce. How did your dad support you in this time?
1: Um. Again, my dad's my hero, and I and I've watched his growth. Uh, I've watched him through difficult times through his business. Through his marriage, uh, my mom has struggled with health conditions in the past, and it's been amazing watching him care for her. You know, I, I did a half Ironman race with my dad when he was in his 60s. It was one of our, uh, you know, one of, one of my favorite moments was crossing the finish line with my dad. And he's been blessed with good health. My mom has not, so it's always been amazing for a guy who's got so much vitality and my mom who's struggled so much that he's sat with her and held her hand through these things and he's fought for her. But I can tell you when I had to stand up and give that speech and it's their 50th wedding anniversary and everyone's looking at me fresh out of a divorce, I was, um, I was anxious and, and I was self-critical. I, I truly did feel like a failure. And with tears in my eyes, my dad and I, uh, at his bachelor party, the night before his <laughs> wedding, uh, I disclosed oh, that to him, and and he's he's shown nothing but love and grace, and he is proud of me for who I am, for my light, for my dark, for what I've accomplished, for my failures, for who I am as a dad, and it's it it humbles me when he looks at me and says, "Man, when I watch you as a father, it makes me think I could have done so much more." For my dad to tell me that, it means a lot. Yeah, it means a lot.
0: Your faith grew through this process. Your dad's faith grew through this process. Was there ever a time you were doubting uh, just where exactly you were and doubting even possibly what you were doing as an orthopedic hand surgeon?
1: I live up near, I I go to CCV Church and uh, the main campus has this mountain with a uh, with a cross on the top, and then there's this uh, this. It, it's a. I'm sorry, it's it, there's a pool where you do baptisms, and I remember um, one night, one of the lowest points, and and just climbing up that hill, and, and climbing up that hill once with my daughter uh, led to me meeting a guy who. Introduced me to this whole concept of (laughs) bettering myself. And I was just doubting the process. You know, it was at that moment, at that time, at that place, that led to everything that had potentially just ruined my life and my family. And I was pissed. And I was sobbing. And I was lost. And I crawled myself into this baptism pool and just soaked myself. And I laid on the grass just... Balling my eyes out, hoping that some security dude in a golf cart wasn't going to like carry me off in Paul Blart handcuffs or something. And, uh, it was a low point and I was doubting everything. And it's that Jeremiah 29, 12, it's just, you know, God's not out to hurt me, but he has, uh, he has my future. And as time has passed, you know, the light has gotten brighter and things are getting better. And there is a new path for me. I don't know what that looks like yet.
0: Um, but you're not afraid to, to risk everything, if you will, as long as you're a a father at the very top of the hierarchy, everything else seems to be second to you. Is, is that a true statement?
1: It is. And even though, I held resentment because 50% of the time I had with the kids was also robbed from me. I realized that I can really freaking kick ass during that other 50% of the time. And I can be an amazing dad and invest in my kids during that 50% of the time. And I can try and give myself permission to live the time I don't. And I know that they're loved and they're cared for by their mom. And, and that, that mindset has helped me a lot during the times that I don't have them. And it's helped me be very intentional during the times that I do. And, and we've created uh, rituals. We've created things that we do um, together as a family, things that we do uh, every night, every morning. Um, I, I know it's, uh, you know, for us, it's I think it's become commonplace to invest in our kids and to write to them. And it what started as simple notes in the morning has turned to a journal. And there is a journal. So imagine this your father you know you're you're 18 years old you're headed off to college or you're after college whatever but your father now hands you a journal that you may have forgotten about that he wrote to you words of wisdom words of encouragement uh, words during difficult times and there's this 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 library of life that's sitting before you that you get to share that your father you know shared with you when you were a kid that would be amazing So instead of the notes that get tossed or pitched or lost, mine is now a journal. It's their journal and it's written in every day I have them. They sit down, they eat their breakfast before school and they open up their journal and they read it. And when that journal is empty, it's going to be stored for them. The next journal comes out and so on and so forth. The other is um, emails. I I created an email account. So for fathers out there, um, creating that email account allows me to kind of dialogue moments in time When I take my cell phone, I snap a picture. There's some fun video. There's something cool that we did. I email it to them. They don't even know this email exists, but there's a quick little blip, a story or something. And someday I will gift them that email address. Hopefully it still exists. I'll gift that to them. And it's going to have this, all these messages that they're going to be able to open and see. Another thing that we do is, um, you know, we have a little declaration. So when I'm driving, that's the other thing, Luke, is I actually drive my kids to school.
0: Non-negotiable every day.
1: Never did that when I was with Toka. When I made the switch and I made the move, I am now in one office, in one location, that's six miles from my kids' school, so I can drive my kids to school. And on the way to school, we go with their daily declaration. At night, we have a prayer that we go through and we say together. Before we have dinner, we sit down as a family, hold hands. We say a prayer. Those are things that we just didn't do before. We don't sit in front of the TV uh, and have some makeshift meal. Sitting around my house, there are those big post-it notes and there's their own outcomes with their own, uh, uh, you know, the things that they've written down that they wanted to accomplish uh, in the different areas of, of their body or, or their faith or their giving or their education. I also have these principles and we'll sit there and we'll, we'll talk about these different principles. There's 13 of them that we read through. And on on the other wall, is a whole list of questions. And I believe it was, last name is Ford, but she wrote a book called The Right Questions. It's a great book. And that book just gives you pause and and it creates sort of a black and white um, sort of dichotomy between experiences in life and which one are you going to choose. So we we use this as a tool at night sometimes while we're eating dinner to just stimulate discussion. And and all those things together, have, I think, sealed an incredible bond. And it's allowed the kids to come to me with hard subjects and hard topics that break their heart and break mine, but at least I had that dialogue. And I've been asked before, well, why do they come to you? I'm like, I like to think it's because I've invested in them as a father that they have the courage that they can say whatever they want. And one of the powerful things that we do, and you know exactly what I'm talking about is a walk and talk. It's very difficult sometimes at the dinner table. It's very difficult sometimes to sit across from one another as a child and to make eye contact and have that dialogue. But man, when you, there's something about going on a walk through our neighborhood, holding hands, staring off into the trees, and that ability to just talk. And the dialogue flows free. And they're able to get things off their chest and I do the very best I can to give them honest answers, honest answers that sometimes hurt. But the walk and talk has been an incredible tool as a father for both my kids. We do them together sometimes, we do them individually sometimes. And they'll ask me like, dad, can we go on a walk and talk?
0: And that's awesome. Yeah, so if if you're hearing anything from what Dr. Craig is saying, it is invest in your children. The same way you would invest in a home, invest in a business, invest in your physical fitness. It takes time, it takes quality time, and it often takes new tools. Dr. Craig just gave you a list of tools to use, and I'm actually going to be uh, shifting from the Post-it note game as our kitchen door is just about full because <laughs> the dog now is tearing them up and they've lost a little bit of their power. And I'm going to go to the journal model. And, and just from having, you know, three generations of uh, information and content from my mom. And from my grandmother, I even have some love notes that my grandfather was writing my grandmother, you know, by a ship mail back in the late wow. 30s from Beirut, Lebanon to Los Angeles when they were still dating. And those are the tangible assets that when we are gone, that will live on for a long time. When we go, they're not going to look at our phone they're not going to go through our text they're not going to go through our emails <laughs> our websites our apps right but if you have something that you have spent and invested time on to leave to them it's it's such a powerful tool that so many dads are missing right like i work with men who are fathers and most of them are are high-profile, high-producing, uh, highly active men who do one or two things really well, but they all have the same challenges, of connecting with my kids, finding more activities to do, you know, doing more than just going out and bringing home the income to live in this nice house or to drive this nice car. And when you dumb it down the other day, we're playing in the backyard, we don't have a pool. We, we moved into this house a decade ago. We love our neighborhood, love the community, you know, we, we bought a great house at the right time, didn't come with a pool. And we're in the backyard and we are playing on a Saturday with the hose and the <laughs> slip and slide and the kids are dying. I'm dying and my wife's inside cooking and I looked just, I just photographed, right? The, the everlasting photograph with my eyes, not with a camera, not with the phone, but just with my eyes. And I was like, we don't need anything but each other and the investment of time and energy and space, right? And yeah, it'd be great. We want a pool. We'll upgrade to a pool in the future. (laughs) It's in the three-year plan, but it didn't matter. We didn't need the objects. We didn't need the shiny shit. We didn't need anything to have fun. And it's in my bio. I talk about it all the time. A successful day for me is being able to get my kids to laugh. And the other morning I had them both just dying at seven 30 in the morning, doing some funky ass chicken dance in the kitchen, (laughs) right? Pretending to be a chicken while I'm cooking eggs. And I, they they just started laughing and I was like, got it. My day is gonna be fantastic. Doesn't matter what else comes. I made them both laugh. You won the day. I won the day, yeah. Loving again being capable of of loving and giving, sacrificing your own emotion and possibly even your ego, you were able to eventually do that. Did it take some time?
1: Yeah, I I um I had no interest. I I was kind of holed up in <clears throat> during that first Probably half year, just just kind of hold up, just trying to figure out where I was and you know what I was doing. And over the last you know two and a half three years, you know I, I've been able to recognize that uh, I'm I'm going to be okay, and I'm not scarred, I'm not broken, I'm not incapable of giving love or or receiving love, and. It's been interesting for me uh, to to want to do for others some of the things that maybe I lost that initiative for in my marriage. And I've been able to kind of critically look back at some of my actions and learn from those. I mean, ultimately, that's what we want to do, right? Statistically, a second marriage is supposedly more doomed to failure through divorce than the first. And I, I certainly never want to take the experience that I went through, assume that it's all her fault. I'm this perfect person and everything is going to be great. So it, it truly has humbled me and its highlighted areas where maybe I did fall short or I could do better. And, and overwhelmingly, I, I think, and I think this goes for a lot of, a lot of men, a lot of married men, that conversations are so important and it's, not something that I have 100% figured out, and it's easy to hide. It's easy to avoid those, and I would encourage men to not only have those conversations with their kids, but geez I mean, walk and talk with your wife too. The sooner you can get that out, then the resentment erodes away. I mean, you're on the right track. That stuff continues to harbor, and it just it it just sucks your soul. So that's probably been the biggest.
0: Revelation for me is, is to make sure that I can communicate effectively. Tim Ferriss talks about the ability to have challenging conversations directly reflects how much success you're having in life. And the more successful people in the world, talk about the, the billionaires, the high performers, mm-hmm. the professional athletes, the biohackers, they have an ability to not focus like this conversation that is gonna be uncomfortable, the pit, as I often explain it, whether it's a cold call or you gotta call a principal or a coach or you gotta call an attorney, you gotta call your wife, your ex-wife, like those conversations that make your stomach sort of clench, the ability for you to be able to have those and do those more often literally will skyrocket your success because then you're not fearing the conversation. You're not fearing the unknown. You're not hesitating and waiting so that the stress builds and lasts. And I put it into perspective with my kids and get home from school and they don't want to do their homework and they want to watch TV for an hour. Well, what at the end of that hour, they want 15 more minutes. And at the end of that 15 more, it's like, <laughs> I struggled with procrastination. It's the cousin of death. It's like it literally, you wouldn't know it now from what you know, but I struggled with it to the point where when I see it, when I see it in my kids specifically, when I see it in clients I work with, I got to call them out on it. And just being able to have those really open dialogue conversations, the tough conversations, uh, has literally allowed me to, to not fear the tough conversations that you gotta have, the conversation with your wife of like, hey, our sex life is not jamming right now. And it's not all about sex, but there's a connection level so that she can reply back with, well, that's because you're letting the kids sleep in the bed with us at night, and there's four (laughs) of us in a bed. And then my rebuttal is, well, what happened last night? And she says, I was on my period. Like those conversations are the realness and the rawness that allow you to grow and the people who hide it and keep it in their pocket and you know let it just stack night after night and year after year those are the ones who struggle the most
1: and i know i'm capable of them i have them every day i mean i'm the guy at work seeing patient after patient after patient having a very candid conversation about their health sometimes tough love talking to them about what they're doing or not doing that's gonna promote their success or their own failures i'm having hard conversations I know I can do it, but it was amazing that I would go home and fail to have the conversations with the person that mattered the most or the people that matter the most. It, it always troubled me that I I gave so much and worried so much about the patients I was treating and then somehow failed when it came to the people that mattered the most and those tough conversations.
0: Yeah. And with the kids, especially, you know, um, I share everything with my kids, you know, sometimes maybe a little too much. And I've become a little more reserved in that. Mm -hmm. But my son, being a young man with a dad who grew up without one, who has struggled a lot in life because of that void, telling him of what my relationship was like in depth and detail, knowing that I didn't have anyone to talk to. And because of that, I turned a corner and I was seeking um, leadership. I was seeking, you know, somebody to inspire me to be my hero. And because of that, it led me down bad paths, dark paths. And he never has to experience that that forever and ever, as long as I'm here, doesn't matter 24 seven, 365, if one day you get drunk and you can't drive, or one day you lose all your money, or one day that this major disaster happens to you, I'm the first guy you call. And it doesn't matter what time of day it is or where it is, you call me first, because I I can guarantee you, you won't cross any of the paths that I crossed. (laughs) But if you get into a little bit of trouble along the way, I'm your man. And that was he was like nine, you know. I kind of shared my mom's death with him at nine, and most people would be like, "You're not supposed to, right? You're not supposed to." But who the fuck right. wrote the book on how to right. parent? Right. I learned because I didn't want to be the dad that I had. Uh, I've got a note, and you've written a few notes to your family as if it was your your last day on earth. And I, I have a note that I wrote that simply says, I am the man, husband, father, and leader that I always wanted in my own life. And if I play that in my head when I don't wanna go play basketball, when I don't wanna go to the movie, when I don't wanna get up to go and pick up my daughter and carry her from her shower to her bedroom, when I don't wanna play hide and go seek, I just think about that simple statement. And when I say no, when I resist that, I'm not living that code that I wrote about my own declaration. So to hear you have these tools of you're empowering your kids to learn about success and failure, about loss and about love and about how, you know what, it's not, you're not going to have a dad who celebrates his 50 year anniversary with your mom. But you got a mom and a dad that love you right and even though that we are not together we still and always will love each other and because of that love you're here being able to say it like that is so much better than oh i fucking hate that bitch. your mom is a lying psychopathic like and that that's a reality for a lot of people uh-huh right like yeah I, I, man to 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 think that you could go either way, regardless of what the woman did, or what what the divorce was about, or the income that that she is now receiving from you and the work that you've done, it's it's never the right way to go down that path.
1: No, and for the, the, that's something that they never need to hear or experience. It's not going to change. And trust me, that 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 small person that I referred to, that that victim. And that's um, sort of a racket that I would run sometimes. Is I'm going to victimize myself and vilify her that, that would want to somehow, you know, when when your daughter's crying and looking at you, saying, "Why can't we live under the same roof? Or why can't we be together again?" And trying to come up with a a good, honest answer to help her explain, versus just putting it off on their mom or 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 vilifying her and saying because she left because she quit or whatever it doesn't serve us no and it doesn't serve her no um and thankfully both of us um jamie and i have both been um i think great parents from that standpoint and we we protect them uh, but are honest with them and we do have hard candid conversations uh, just about that And, and we've even sought help and Had some counselors kind of help us through that. And what I learned most out of that was that I was afraid to use the D word. I was ashamed. And in the beginning of our our divorce, I couldn't use the word. And it, it was so awkward. And this counselor just starts spouting this out when the kids are like, well, why can't we live under the same roof? Because your parents are divorced. They're not going to live together again. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe she's saying this and they're going to freak out. And I'm getting all uncomfortable and beginning to fidget and twitch in my seat. And I realize that she's having those conversations that I was incapable of having. And it was such a moment of weakness, but a moment of clarity in how I need to show up as a dad. So I'm not creating this confusion or delusion that someday things are going to change and everything's going to go back to the way it was. No, it's we will persevere and we will make the most of this situation. And you are fiercely loved by mom, by dad, by everyone in our family. And we will work together to create the best co-parenting relationship possible. I, I'm blessed that, that I have that. And our counselor has even said, I've got parents who can't walk down the same hallway. But you guys sit here together committed to trying to be the best parents that you can be. And she's like, it's such a breath of fresh air. Yeah, it's and I'm powerful. grateful for that.
0: Yeah, real powerful. I'm a big reader. Uh, just got a book, got to love Amazon. They started out as a, a company that was the bookseller. And I, what I love about it is, you know, somebody tells me, hey, did you read this or you, that? And I just, boom, you know, one click and I got a book at my doorsteps <laughs> right? the next day. But I've, become truly this version of myself in the past decade, specifically the past five years from, from spending a, a minimum of 30 minutes a day reading and understanding that I don't know everything about a relationship and a marriage and love. I was just uh, recommended The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. And I'm going to read just a, a simple chapter, excuse me, a paragraph in this. The first step to take is to become aware that love is an art, just as living is an art. If we want to learn how to love, we must proceed in the same way we have to proceed if we want to learn any other art, like music, painting, carpentry, or the art of medicine or engineering. What are the necessary steps in learning any art? The process of learning an art can be divided conventionally into two parts one, the mastery of the theory the other, the mastery of the practice. If I wanna learn the art of medicine, I must first know the facts about the human body and about those various diseases. When I have that theoretical knowledge, I am by no means competent in the art of medicine. And really what I get from that Mm -hmm. is just because you're in love in the term or you have a relationship where you tell someone you love them, it is a never ending work of art to continue to love that person to love yourself but to love that person what are you reading right now are you strictly audible because the amount of time that you're ripping people's hands open and how do you get it in what are you what are you extracting right now in terms of knowledge and information and content
1: you know i'm a i'm a huge audible fan and it, it has opened up my ability to to uh, to consume content um, whether that's uh, hiking the mountains, whether that's um, in the morning, commuting. Um, that's been my, my, my biggest gift. Um, there was a time where I wasn't reading anything. Again, that growth was stagnant. It was the minimum. It was reading my hand journals or whatever. And um, I've gone through a, a lot of books. The one I'm actually reading right now is called Atomic Habits. And that book kind of reminds me of the description you gave with your kids and the letter that you wrote to your father. And, and that is that it, it, it isn't just really a habit of, okay, I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna do this and do that with my kids. It has become a way of being for you and who you believe yourself to be. So instead of just simply saying, these are the habits that I'm going to do every morning, it's more of a, who do I need to become or who, who do I believe myself to be? And these happen to be the habits that help reinforce that. Writing a note to my kids is a task; it's a habit, but it's in alignment with who I want to be in my way of being as an incredible father of the future. So, I, I that was one thing that I immediately kind of keyed in on when you were talking about the letter and how you perform, and that is your your essence. That's your way of being. So, uh, that book is a great book, and it truly kind of breaks down you know these goals into. Not, not just accomplishing that goal, which I talked about at the beginning of the podcast on how I was moving from sort of target to target or goal to goal or horizon to horizon, but, but now more trying to become who I believe myself to be or who I want to be uh, as a person moving forward.
0: And it's a never-ending journey. You know, I, this message, this platform, this movement really is about not just becoming a father of the future not just becoming a kick-ass dad not just playing with your kids once but making this a consistent lifelong habit knowing that as our kids age and go through different transformations we must continue to go through those transformations and the way that i've connected with my kids in the past is not going to be how i connect with them in the future and understanding those variables and understanding this lifelong commitment like anybody can have a kid But it takes a real man to become a father amen my brother dr craig burgess i cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come here where can the people find you between social media and your website and if for some reason like my son somebody breaks two fingers in one basketball (laughs) season how can they get a hold of you and how can they find out where you're at
1: um well Luke, thank you. You know when you uh, when we were communicating the other day, and you you asked me, "Hey, when are you going to come down and get on my podcast?" I was um, number one, humbled. Number two, then nervous because i would never done a podcast before. This first and one. First one.
0: Oh man, you knocked it out the park. Uh, well, yeah. I appreciate
1: that. Yeah. I just I, I wanted to uh, I wanted to do well for you, and I wanted to do well for your listeners and the fathers out there. So hopefully. Um, maybe my story might help someone who is struggling as a single father or struggling with the concept of divorce or has gone through it. Um, as far as finding me, uh, I'm now comfortably, uh, a partner in Ortho Arizona. So, um, Ortho Arizona has a, a website, orthoarizona.org. Um, my practice is up in Glendale, Arizona. Uh, Instagram is Craig.Burgess. That's K-R-A-I-G.Burgess or Dr. Craig Burgess. Uh, Also on Facebook as well under Dr. Craig
0: Burgess. Yeah. Uh, One last thing I'd love to ask you. The position that you're in as a doctor, as a surgeon, as an orthopedic, uh, it's a very hush-hush, don't discuss kind of environment based on this podcast alone and just what I know of you. You've really opened up about being vulnerable. But because of that, you've also said that that's helped you become a better doctor. How, how how come there aren't more men specifically medical doctors men fathers who share anything with the world that's happening around them and this probably has something to do with the the burnout that you wrote about right right not being able to have a platform to speak of but how how has becoming vulnerable become a superpower for you
1: you know it's It's amazing, right? I mean, when you you look at physicians, we are human. We have problems, we have struggles, but by and large, society doesn't necessarily want to think about that. They want to assume that their doctor is on point. When they show up for surgery, they're on point. They don't want to know that they were up all night because their kid was miserably sick. They don't want to know that they just did Kokoro, They don't wanna know that their wife just asked them for a divorce. They don't wanna know that they're miserably depressed or going through uh, some major financial crisis, whatever it may be, we're, we're supposed to be perfect. There are no sick days. I've operated with IVs in my arm, dehydrated with a fever, taking medication to keep me from vomiting. There's this expectation that you better show up and you better get, the best there's not a lot of grace for being wrong Um, and that creates this pressure and i think that pressure boils and you give so much of yourself that on the way home it's kind of like the last thing you want to do is have another conversation you've just solved 40 people's problems and you don't have much more to give and that transitions into the home where you don't have a lot to give or you're not calling your own mother on the way home, or your best friend who you haven't connected with because you're just zoning out. And it's interesting because this, the change in practice, the loss of my marriage, being a single dad has humbled me a lot. Going through the process of being vulnerable has made me realize that, you know what, I'm not alone. It's also made me realize that if, if a patient can't connect with that, with me in, in, in all of my light and dark, I'm not the physician for them. And, and I have opened up and I have shared things on either mostly Facebook or on Instagram and in some videos and just shared some of those stories. And I can't tell you how many patients have actually come to me and said, thank you. Thank you for actually being vulnerable. Thank you for letting me know that you're actually human, or I love seeing what kind of dad you are. So it, it really has um, allowed me to be me and to stop apologizing for who I am, who I was and, and, and who I will be in the future. It's it's a load off your shoulders. And I would, um, I would encourage other, other professionals who feel the similar pressure, and certainly other physicians, uh, to maybe question that story, uh, because there are other possibilities.
0: Well, we thank you for opening up, Dr. Craig Burgess. You are unapologetically authentic, and and because of that, you know I I look at you across this table um, with an open heart and an open mind, just knowing that there are men out there like you that hold this title of, of father, whether they have an MD attached to it or not. And because of that, we can all learn from you and from your experiences. So I thank you for for being here today, my brother.
1: Luke, I'm humbled. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you guys for being here today with all of love, gratitude, and appreciation for taking the time to listen to this message. If you received value from the Fathers of the Future podcast and this experience, all we ask in return is that you subscribe to the podcast, that you share it out. If you know a doctor, a husband and a father, or someone you know is all three of those things, directly send this to them, text them this. And if you wanna reach out to me, if you wanna learn more about this movement and and how you can become a part of it, you can check out my website at lukekayem.com, L-U-K-E-K-A-Y-Y-E-M com And of course, on Instagram and Facebook, just send me a direct message and say, hey, I listened to this podcast. This is the message I got from it. Thank you for being here. And I truly value, truly appreciate and value your time for being here today. We'll see you guys soon.